Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 1238 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday, October 31st, 2013, so happy Halloween. I'm not doing anything for Halloween this year, no zombie shows or anything like that. Actually, it's really a woman of prepping series. I'm actually tagging it as a woman of prepping series, but I'm not titling it that way uh, because the uh, the gal that we're going to have on here in a minute didn't come to me with the intention of uh, of having the episode, I guess, marketed that way, so to speak. But she is a woman of prepping. Uh, one of the most interesting, I think, we've ever had on the show as part of that series or in any other way. Her name is Jenna Wagenrich, and she is uh, the author of a book called The One Woman Farm. Uh, and just a couple of years ago, she was in corporate America. Today, she is an author, homesteader, rancher, falconer in training. Uh, I mean, you know, you're talking about two summers, and now she's running a six-and-a-half-acre farm with draft animals and livestock by herself, learning uh, primitive skills like falconry, and we're going to talk about that and a bunch of other stuff in just a minute. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine. It's a magazine that's responsible for a lot of uh, a lot of TSP, honestly. I found Backwoods Home Magazine when I was a very young person, just out of the military, and was trying to kind of figure out what the hell to do with my life going forward. I was pretty broke at the time, looking for my first real job. I had a roommate that we uh, had an apartment together in a place called Louisville, Texas, and there was a mall about a mile and a half away from our apartment. And uh, there's a Barnes and Noble there, and when I had nothing to do and no money, uh, maybe enough money to scrape together to buy a Starbucks coffee, I'd walk down there, buy a coffee, and spend a day researching and learning at a, at a bookstore. And I really did that, and I found this magazine in there called Backwoods Home Magazine, and there was a part of me that was really missing the royal childhood I grew up with, and uh, it was a reconnection to that. And it was my beginning of awakening to the concept of libertarian philosophy. If you're looking for a magazine that will bring you information on being self-reliant and self-sufficient and sustainable, taking care of the earth but doing so with common sense and an understanding that less government is good government, check out Backwoods Home Magazine with articles by great people like Dave Duffy, John Silvera, Jack Clay. Masada Ayub, and other really great folks. BackwoodsHomeMagazine.com, and they do have a special for new subscribers through the Members Support Brigade. Check it out in the benefits section of the MSB. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Guys, i got to get a video out for you. i got some new shees that are just going in the gear shop right now, but I've been doing these little mods to the Mora 2 Classic Knife, which really isn't making a knife, but it's fun. And it has me thinking, well, what else could I do? So I might just carry myself over to Knife Kits. You might want to do the same thing. Because even if when it comes to making knives, you're a novice like me, you can get a kit, handle material, bolsters, things like that, and make your own knife. And you're like, I don't know what to do. Call them up. They'll help you figure out what to do for your first project. You really don't know what to do at all. They have books and DVDs. If you're a, bla a master bladesmith and you're looking for Damascus steel or you know camel bone for handles or something exotic like that, they've got that. They've got a huge selection of Kydex, both for knives, sheets, and anything else you want to make out of Kydex. 
Check them out today, knifekits.com, and they do a discount for all members of the Sport Brigade. So, again, if you're a member, make sure you're checking before you buy anything, not just with our sponsors, but our other supporting vendors. If you're going to buy anything in prepping, go back there and look first. That's why I've negotiated the discounts for you so that the membership will pay for itself. And uh, it doesn't do you any good if you don't use it. And it's there. And it's it's a significant savings across the board. Not just with Knife Kits and Backwoods Home and many of our other sponsors, but a lot of other people that support the show that there's just not room for at the sponsorship table. And when they come to me and say, I want to advertise, I come back to them and say, how about a discount, dude, because I, I don't have any advertising for you. So make sure you're using that. On that note, consider joining the MSB. 18.3 cents an episode, call it 20 cents, two dimes an episode. You get done with an episode, you're like, that's worth 20 cents? Consider, consider joining the MSB, and if you uh, use the discounts and the other great benefits there, it'll pay for itself anyway. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service in any first responder positions like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, uh, active duty or prior service. You guys do qualify for a discount on that membership. Email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. And in one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, who you are and what you did. That's all I need to know, and I'll send you that discount. Again, please consider joining the MSB. We're making it even more advantageous. You know, People that were part of the MSB got first crack at registering for the Earthworks Seminar. That one didn't sell out in a week. We still have a few positions left at it, just a few. Uh, I think I'm up to 23, and we were going to sell 24, and I just talked to Dorothy, and I think she's going to let us go to 26 or, or so on it. Um, so we might make a few more available. Uh, but some of the ones we're going to do, man, they're going to sell out. That's just one advantage. Um, there's a lot of other, like we're doing a weekly video now for MSB members only. I've actually had one person mad at me for that. I had one person email me how, how wrong I am for doing private videos for members who've been supporting my show some of you guys for over five years i just that one made me chuckle and i deleted it and i wonder what kind of person actually thinks that way i i, I don't really get it anyway guys do consider joining the msb i'm always looking to try to improve the value in it for you and uh if you know a company and keep in mind if you're going to give me a company like midway usa or cabela's Don't think I haven't tried, but those companies are big enough. They don't talk to people like me. But if you know of a good supplier, especially someone you know I can get to, like, at least a director of marketing level or above, like an owner or a president, that you think would make a good fit for our support brigade, and you think you'd like to get that person some, some extra business and our members added value, let me know who they are, and I'll, I'll try to get in touch with them and see what I can do. Uh, that's how a lot of the member support brigade discounters have come to be. It's people like you telling me about it. All right, before we bring Jen on, let's go ahead and take care of looking at the year in question, the date, the year 1238. What happened in the year 1238? Not much. Uh, I got one bullet point for you, just because I thought it was a little bit interesting to think about. In 1238, the Mongol Empire has ravaged across Russia, the modern-day Russia, and uh, it seized Moscow. They took Moscow in 1238. Yay, they got the capital. No. In 1238, Moscow was nothing but a small town. Uh, but a small town now occupied by the Mongol Empire. As we can see, while people in Europe are busy fighting with each other and you know, r running crusades on the Holy Land and chopping up borders and dealing with famines and not really paying much attention... The threat from the east continues to move and continues to advance. The barbarians are getting a lot closer to the gates. 
Nobody's paying attention. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And with that, it's my good pleasure now to introduce Jenna uh, Wagenrich. Again, Jenna's an author, homesteader, archer, falconer in training. Two summers ago, she left her corporate office gig to focus on full-time farming, and uh, she now runs a six-and-a-half-acre homestead by herself in the Adirondacks of Washington County, New York. And with that, hey, Jenna, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm great to have you on. We, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. I'm, I'm sitting here holding your book called The One Woman Farm. And uh, that's that's an interesting title. I'm, I've been looking through it, and it's more of a journal and, and thoughts and reflections on what your life is like. And uh, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. But what I always like to start out with with people is kind of how'd you end up where you, where you are? Because most of us living a self sufficient lifestyle or a homesteading lifestyle didn't like grow up with it, stick with it. We've kind of come to where we are by a crooked circle, as I like to call it. Could you tell us a little bit about what you did before you you do what you're doing now and, and how you got there? Sure. Um, my story is like a lot of people, I think, that are coming into homesteading in the fact that I didn't start out or nor was I raised in this type of environment. I fell in love with self-sufficiency when I got my first job outside of college. I was hired to work for a television network in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I fell in love with the Smoky Mountains, which are, oh, I don't know, maybe a 40-minute drive from the city. And I spent all my weekends running to the mountain, and I found this little community, well, it's a historical community, a kind of a loop you drive through called Caves Cove, and it was an turn-of-the-century homesteading community. And I, you know, I grew up on, you know, Wonder Bread and the Wonder Years, like television and, <laughs> and you know, there was no such thing as as homesteading other than in, like, Little House in the Prairie books. And so when I found out that these people who lived way before cars or supermarkets were able to feed themselves and clothe themselves and, and dye their own wool and, and have this community working on horsepower up in the mountains, it, was, it wasn't that long ago. It was two or three generations ago. And I realized not only how tangible it was, but how little I knew about actually taking care of myself. And instead of being inspired, I was actually somewhat scared because I realized without my, you know, my, my station wagon and a grocery store, I would be immobile and very, very hungry and, and dead. And so I, uh, I started learning little by little uh, a skill here or there. And before you knew it, I had left my job in Tennessee and moved to the mountains in Idaho to start a whole new career and a whole new life out there. Wow. And, you know, so you're this woman on basically, I guess you'd call it a farmstead. And you're doing this alone. Um, you, you know, you're, you're single, I guess. And you don't have like a, even like a roommate or like a farmhand or something like that. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, females out there that go, wow, how do you do that? And, and from their point of view, I guess the biggest question would be, what is the hardest part of running a little farm like that on your own? So, I don't think hard is the right word. I think the right word is, because nothing I do is actually hard. Like, it's not hard to carry a five-gallon bucket or a bale of hay. What's hard is the presence you need to have. And I think being in one space, I'm on six and a half acres on the side of a, a mountain in upstate New York, 
you know, you can't decide to go to like Montreal overnight for a concert or visit friends for the holidays because there's a milking schedule for dairy goats and there's things that need to be, you know, have roofs, have snow raked off and, and critters that need to be on a feeding schedule and a breeding and birthing schedule. And so my entire world has become this probably a 10 mile radius from the farm. So the hard part isn't getting the animals or taking care of things every day. The hard part is understanding that you have these limitations and it really, you know, it takes really understanding friends or spouses or family to know that, you know, you can't run home for Christmas and you can't be at so-and-so's, you know, baby shower or, or weddings. And so I would say that that limitation of travel would, would be what's hard. But the work itself, I mean, I can't imagine doing anything else. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's hard. I would say it's the mental edge that's a lot harder than the physical. Yeah, the animals do keep you grounded to a site. It's one of the reasons that we actually brought an intern to what we're doing, simply so that we could take a vacation. Um, if you have a couple dogs and you want somebody to dog sit for you or you want to put them in a, a boarding kennel or, or just even have, like, if you have a good fenced yard, have neighbors look in on them, that's really easy. Having neighbors, you know, especially in le- if they're not homesteaders as well, being able to look after a flock of geese, a flock of chickens, a couple goats or something like that, it's not as easy, is it? No, it's it's definitely not. But I think people that are drawn to this lifestyle, they kind of made their homes their perfect vacation in a lot of senses. So, I mean, the positives outweigh the negatives for me. And if, I, if there was an emergency and I really had to leave, there are farmers and homesteaders around here that would, you know, be here to stoke the wood stove and milk the goat and, and take care of animals. There is a emergency plan for that kind of thing, but, you know, it's it's definitely not easy to implement, like handing, you know, a leash to a dog kennel and, you know, handing over the vet papers and saying, see you next Tuesday. You know, it's not going to happen. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, you do actually a lot of things on your farm using animals uh, to be part of your labor force, animal power. What are yes. you know? How do you do that? What are some of the advantages that it that it brings you versus using you know an engine or a pump? So I'm I'm not like a luddite. I'm not anti technology at all. But it just so happened that where I moved to and where I started my farm is really uh, engaged in animal power. There's a draft animal association here. There's draft club events. You know, uh, most of my friends. In fact, I was. <laughs> I was saying the other day that I talk to more people that use draft animals than have pet cats, like because that's just the the world that I happen to live in right now. It's just there's a lot of farmers that use donkeys or oxen or horses. I use draft ponies, which are not really ponies. I mean, they're a thousand pounds, but compared to big draft horses, they're ponies. But uh, the advantages, I guess, have to do with how my land is laid out first. I live literally on the side of a mountain, so uh, a tractor or big equipment, it's just this place was never set up for that. The farmhouse is from the 1850s, and it was basically carved into a piece of land with one flat spot, and that's where the house is, and the rest is woods and logging trails and pasture on a hillside, and it's definitely not the kind of place you'd buy if you wanted, you know, row cropping or you know, this amazing produce market. It's uh it's definitely a sheep farm. So 
there's animals on pasture on the hillside that are really good at foraging and, and growing wool and meat on scrub, which is what a lot of it is up here. But as far as putting a tractor out there to pull out a log, I'm fairly certain I'd be dead if I had a tractor because I would just flip it on top of me. But having a, a horse that you could hook up a, a log or two to and walk behind out of the woods and, and go back and do more, it's, it's narrower spaces. It's pretty hard for them to break down unless something tremendously horrible happens. And they eat, you know, what grows out of the ground for fuel. So around here, it's pretty popular for a small operation like this, which is pretty much just my own personal grocery store. It's not like I'm feeding hundreds of people. I'm keeping myself fed and warm through firewood. So, you know, one good horse, which is what I have, is how I do a lot of what would be considered tractor work around here. Very cool. You know, did you get any training in that, or did you just kind of figure it out as you went? I definitely got training, but not in a conventional sense. I I joined this draft club, and everyone is, is just farmers or homesteaders or horse people. And I say that not in the, you know, tight pants, high boots, horse show sense. I mean that they have working horses on their farm. And a lot of it is, is learning as you go. It's miles with the lines between your hands, but um, but a lot of it is just being with people who are already doing it. So it really was a mentorship kind of thing. I had the horse, but I was terrified what to really do with it or, or didn't feel confident with it at first. So, you know, I got the horse, and that was the first step. And then after that, I joined this club, and people had me sit next to them on their wagons and taught me how to drive carts and how to drive um, equipment. And, you know, friends at logs, you know, they would come over and they would hitch up, hitch, <clears throat> excuse me, they would hitch up my uh, horse to a, a log and be like, okay, let's go. And, you know, I wasn't ready for when the horse was ready to take off because I thought it would be the leisurely walk through the woods. But to get momentum to pull something heavy, they kind of just take off. And so I had literally a, a flannel shirt ripped off of me um, from rose stickers coming out of the woods once when I was pulling out a log because... I wasn't ready for the speed, nor was I very um, athletically prepared <laughs> to, 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 you know, get through all the rose bushes. So it's been an adventure, but the, the short answer is yes, I had help, but it wasn't like official classes. It was clubs and neighbors and friends and basically just hitching on to folks who knew what they were doing and asking if, you know, they're willing to teach someone else. And And I find that when you come to someone with absolute ignorance. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Can you teach me? Most people are so thrilled to share something they're passionate about that if you just if you just shut up and let them talk, you learn so much. So I spent a lot of time nodding and saying thank you and, and learning from others as well as, you know, destroying clothing in the woods. Now, as you were learning from these folks, did they actually become a source of animals or were they where you, you purchased some of your, your livestock from? Yeah. I mean, the great thing about community is how much goes on in, like, an underground economy. We People barter livestock, equipment for the horses or for the animals. So if you know, you're, you know someone that has the same size horse as you, then they probably have extra equipment or they have stuff that you could use. And so... It's been a kind of a rotation of stock and equipment and 
you know, they have the equipment and they know someone who knows how to repair it or they know somebody who um, knows somebody else who had that same piece. And, uh, you know, it's, it's become a whole resource beyond just the, the club itself. It's, it's amazing what's out there when you kind of reach out and start asking questions. Absolutely. So you're involved in a lot of things that are kind of cool, um, like archery and falconry. Um, and and I, from what I can glean, like archery, we're not talking about high dollar, you know, multi-cam bows, but older archery technology and falconry, of course, has a, a multi-thousand year history. Uh, I was just actually out with a falconer uh, hunting squirrels with a Harris's hawk. So I have a little bit of, a, of an insight into that now. Can you talk about, like, what relevance these skills have in today's world? Yeah, absolutely. Well, archery and falconry come down to a very relevant topic, which is hunting. And we all have to eat. And in my part of the country, which is um, the northeast of the United States, falconry and archery are both pretty popular. I live in a, a county in New York that has, I think, 12 falconers within... 50 miles of me, which which seems like a high number for population, but it's a pretty popular sport up here, and it's a year-long apprentice, I'm sorry, it's a year-long application process to become an apprentice falconer in this state, and I actually just got my apprentice license in the mail today, so I'm, I'm super excited about that. Uh, I'll be trapping my first red tail in the next couple of weeks and starting the whole process, and and that'll all be documented on my on my website if anyone is interested. But uh, but I've been working part time this summer for the British School of Falconry in Vermont, and that's where I taught archery as well. And you know it all comes down to hunting. So you know you, when you're a falconer, you're using a hawk instead of a, a 22 or a shotgun. And when you're an archer, you're using that equipment for the same reason to take game. And I started out on a traditional archery team a couple of summers ago um, through the SCA, which is uh, an international group for historical reenactment of the Middle Ages. But it's not like the Ren Fair crowd. It's more of the history buff crowd. And so things like homebrewing and archery and sewing and embroidery or, you know, blacksmithing, these are all skills that people in this club preserved from that time period, and I fell in love with archery and meeting local boyers and competitors who made their own bows, made their own arrows, you know, took the goose feathers they shot from, you know, from geese out of the sky and used those goose feathers to make their own fletchings on their own arrows. It was just this more romantic and more primal version of archery, and uh, I just fell in love with it. So I've never actually shot a compound bow. I I draw a 50-pound recurve. And that's for um, hunting and for target practice. And my first talk will be here in a couple of weeks. So I'm by no means an expert in both of these fields, but it's been wonderful to have kind of a different sort of ammunition for for taking game. And I'm someone who's just so drawn to animals that it, it makes a lot of sense for me to send a hawk up in the trees and have it, you know, take the game that I can't even see or notice or can tell is running away, you know, 100 yards ahead of me. But they can. So for us clumsy people, it's nice having something like a hawk on our side when it comes to a small game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
You mentioned something that you kind of passed right over that was something I just learned that I didn't know that I think people would enjoy hearing about. You mentioned trapping a hawk, trapping a red tail. I think there's only – like when you're an apprentice, there's only several different birds that you're allowed to trap. But as an apprentice, one of the things you have to do is actually trap a wild bird. You can't, as an apprentice, purchase a bird, and you're limited into what you can own – and I also understand that many apprentices will trap and train a bird and then end up re-releasing that animal back into the wild when they've re- you know, gotten to the required level where they're able to purchase a bird that maybe they prefer. The guy that I was just with named Chris also trapped a red tail, worked with it, you know, went through his apprenticeship, got to that whatever that next level is, and then decided he wanted to release that bird and, and, and end up purchasing a Harris's hawk that was captive bred. Can you talk a little bit about the why behind the reasoning that they have you do that? I think most people will be shocked because they think, well, these birds are protected, and now you're going out and capturing them. Yeah, sure. So I guess to start out with, I'd have to explain that this vision we have of these hawks flying in the wild that are carefree and liberated creatures. The, The truth is wild hawks are either terrified or hungry or in between being terrified or hungry. They are wild animals just trying not to starve to death or be killed. And for red-tailed hawks, at least in North America, 70% don't make it to be a year old. They don't get to that first passage phase where they they head, you know, into the possibility of migration. Uh, 90% don't make it to be two years old. And that's why uh, apprentices are allowed to trap them, because the bird you're trapping, there's a pretty good chance it wasn't going to make it much longer anyway, just specifically speaking. Um, And yeah, apprentices have to trap a bird, and the reason for that is if you're going to get into a sport like falconry, uh, anyone could just buy a a bird that's trained or suited for your environment or come already knowing how to do everything. They want, as part of your licensing process, to learn every skill in the sport, which includes trapping a wild animal, you don't so much gain its trust as gain its acceptance. Um, the birds never domesticated. They never become your pets. That's why you can release a red-tailed hawk at any time and it'll be just fine. But the reason they want you to trap this wild animal is so you know every skill set in the sport. And it's, it's a requisite for getting your falconer's license as opposed to just your apprentice license. So depending on your mentor, and this is a mentored program, my mentor is a 70-year-old something fellow named Ed who is, an, is a retired carousel horse carver in my county and has got like this great uh, temperament where there's just no bullshit whatsoever. He just wants to teach me the way he feels it should be done. And so I built the animals muse and uh, amuses uh, the aviary for the bird. So you have to before you can even apply for your license, you need to, to build this. Uh, it's kind of like an addition on your house for a hawk, its own little uh, living quarters. And, you know, he, he had specifications for how that would be built. And he also wants me to work with a red tail and not go to something like a Harris hawk because he feels that the animals, as great as they are, if it wasn't for Harris hawks, there would be half the people involved in falconry right now in the United States. They're, they're such great, willing, and hardworking birds that it makes it really easy on the falconer, which is not a bad thing, and nor am I in any way 
um, begrudging anyone with the Harris Hawk. It's just that I have this old school mentor who wants me to do everything the hard way. And he's also making me do hood training. So you've probably seen um, falcons with hoods, if you've ever looked into falconry, those, those kind of masks they wear on their head. A lot of falconers don't do that anymore. They put the birds in like a traveling black, like a crate, like you put a dog in with a perch in it. And my instructor is old school and is having me go through all the hood training as well. So the kind of neat thing about that is I could put a perch in my passenger seat of my pickup truck and have just the bird on the perch next to me riding shotgun when we go hunting. So I don't have to worry about special containers for it. But, uh, I don't know. Did that answer your question, Jack? Yeah, yeah. Mean? And I, you know, just kind of on that, I, as far as I know, from what I've gleaned, an apprentice can't get a Harris Hawk. Like, there's only, I think it's like a red tail and one or two other birds you could even get as an apprentice. Like, you have to get through that before you can get some of these other birds. And uh, it's kind of cool. I, and I, I like the way your guy's teaching you because I liken it to, like, if I want to teach somebody to drive a car, I want to stick, teach them to drive a stick shift first. If I want to teach somebody to shoot a rifle, I want to teach it with iron sights first. I, you know, I, I don't want to give somebody kind of the Cadillac option uh, before they, you know, learn uh, the, the most basic version. If you want to teach somebody, you know, math, you want to teach them to do it on paper before you give them a calculator. So that's really cool. And my other understanding is a lot of this concept of trapping and working with a bird really teaches the apprentice the history of the sport. In other words, in, you know, you know, 1500s when people were doing this even back then and earlier, uh, you didn't go down to the store and buy a hawk. Uh, you you right. had to, this is how you people learned. Like this is what everybody did uh, in the genesis of of the uh, of the sport. Absolutely, and it really hasn't changed much since the Middle Ages. Uh, the funny thing is, is my uh, mentor Ed, who's in his 70s, he learned when he was in, I think, junior high school. Uh, in down in Long Island, I think. I'm not sure. Somewhere in Jersey or Long Island. This was before there was any federal faculty regulations. He got, he kind of fell in love with the idea of the sport and a librarian found out he was interested based on the books he was reading in the library and ordered for him the manual used uh, in the 1600s for royalty. They got like some weird, like, you know, encrypted old copy of it that was reprinted by some college. <laughs> he taught himself as a as a teenager how to do this based on the practices from hundreds of years ago. And I kind of think it's so neat that, you know, this is basically a, a medieval trained falconer who's going to be teaching me how to do this the way he learned. Uh, and there's not a huge degree separation between me and whoever was doing this in, you know, 1484. But per the birds, yeah, you have to start as, as a, as a, as a, well, sorry, I'm talking too fast. You have to start out with a red tail or a kestrel in this state. And kestrels are technically true falcons and are really, you know, really clever and keen birds. But I want to use this bird for hunting, so I don't eat mice and grasshoppers and moths, and so I would love to have a bird that can take game that I can actually share with the bird, you know, give it some of it raw and take it home and, and have a stew or pheasant or... At the school I worked at, uh, one of the Harris Hawks took down a, a wild turkey, so <laughs> it's kind of amazing the game that these animals can take, and 
yeah, and I'm a hunter at heart. I love, I love all types of hunting and, and trapping and stalking. And so to, to take that up to a whole other level, um, with the horse and with the bird, I'm, I'm just so excited for next fall. Yeah, definitely. This guy, this guy that I just met, he actually has a, uh, a, a rat terrier that hunts in combination with the bird. And when he gets game that's, you know, something a human want to eat, they actually divide up the game so that, the, you know, the dog might get the head, the bird might get the vitals, and he might get some of the, the main meat. And his bird has taken quite a few rats as well, and he'll use that as feed for his bird. And, like, the, the level of, of intricacy where, you know, you were talking about how the bird is generally in a starving state in the wild, and, and the, the falconer has to keep the bird healthy and strong but not overfed and you, they, they, you guys weigh the birds all the time and keep them at an optimum weight for hunting where they'll want to hunt but be strong enough to hunt well and uh it, it's it's obviously a huge commitment and it, it's it's pretty amazing we actually uh had a squirrel and a rabbit that the bird caught uh while we were at this workshop and uh, i campfire cooked the the squirrel and rabbit and we uh you know, it was a small amount of meat for there's like 10 guys around this fire. But uh, there was something very primal about, you know, campfire cooking rabbit and squirrel and, you know, eating rabbit liver that was from a, a, a hawk captured uh, rabbit. That's just really, really kind of special. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? And, you know, it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but uh, I just think it's, fascinating and beautiful and it's it's something we've been doing with these birds for i'm not sure if it's thousands but for certainly hundreds of years we've 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 worked in combination with these animals and i just think it's so rewarding to have that relationship and it's not a pet you know it's a partner and so you have this hawk which is like this broke roommate without a car you have to kind of like drive around and feed and take care of and weigh and (laughs) keep track of but you also gain this amazing relationship, and I'm sure any falconer you talk to who, who sticks with the sport, they're in it for that, that relationship, for that high, you know, for, for having an animal fly off your fist, take game, you know, put it in your, in your bag, take it home, cook it, and that just to me is so cool. And I'm, I'm so new at this sport. I've, I've worked with this school, and I have this mentor, but... I mean, I'm I'm not where your Haritalk friend is at yet, but yeah, I mean, heck, I'll get there, and I'm I'm super excited. Well, he's like one of the luckiest people in the world, I think, that's in this sport because he ended up full time employed by an animal nuisance control company, and he's now flying hawks and falcons, not just as his sport, but as his job. So that's <laughs> wonderful. That's like, I mean, it's like that's like you know. Well, you know, what I want to do for a living is I want to eat pie. And, and then somebody goes, okay, here's a job eating pie. Of course, you'd probably get knocked over by Paul Wheaton on the way to that job. But uh, but it, it kind of is like, really, that's that's what you do? You chase, you know, pigeons and seagulls away with, with hawks for a living. He's like, yeah, I'm like, you got him. And he's like 24 years old. Well, there's not a lot of people who do this. Yeah, you know? that's, like, that's the, the thing. Like. If you've got a dump and you've got too many seagulls or you're at a college campus about to have parents weekend and you've got goose crap everywhere, yeah, if you need someone to humanely, because they can't get out shotguns and scare them off, you know? No. So there's, there's companies here. Um, one uses border collies and one uses hawks. And they basically 
That's what they do. They pest control. They terrorize the birds to where they go somewhere else, right? It's like they they don't – you can't have one hawk kill like a a 10,000 grackle flock, but it just harasses them to the point where they're like, you know what? We're going to go somewhere else and crap somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's what your friend does. He professionally makes animals say, this is a beat scene. We're going somewhere else. (laughs) See, my high school guidance counselor never told me about that career opportunity. Yeah, mine either. <laughs> so let's talk about some other stuff you're doing. So, like, there's people out there that really are thinking about getting, like, a, a riding horse or a workhorse, uh, which is something you do. And you, you kind of talk about how you got trained, but, like, persons like, maybe I don't have somebody around me or, or whatever. How do they find somebody? Where do they start when you're you're thinking about that? And, you know, can you talk about, like, the difference between, like, a draft horse and a riding horse? And are there some horses that, you know, you can use for both? Yeah, I think if you're looking at this as a homesteader or as a survivalist or as someone who just wants to add a little bit of animal power or even like a second vehicle, I mean, that's how I got into this. I wanted an option for non-motor travel. I wanted a cart horse, and I wanted a horse that I could throw a saddle on and, and ride to town or to a neighbor's house. And so it turns out that those are really hard horses to find, not because there's any shortage of horses, but... It takes a really well-rounded and calm animal that will basically be that versatile and that dependable. And I would say if you're getting started, um, I think the smaller draft breeds are the best way to go. If you have a couple acres and you want a horse that can pull a plow and handle, you know, a 250-pound person in the saddle, you're looking at breeds like uh, a fjord horse or the ever-popular Hasslinger or draft crosses, like sometimes you can get a, a, a horse like a, a Percheron cross with a Morgan, and you get these really great medium-sized horses. So I would say smaller draft and draft crosses are where you want to start. And I think that makes people nervous because all of us think of, like, the Clydesdales from Budweiser commercials, like these gigantic animals. But uh, you have to remember, the bigger a horse is, usually the calmer it is and the more even the temperament it is because these animals were made pretty much to be engines to work as hard as possible on as little grain and hay as possible. So, I, I mean, I, when I turned to horses, I got a pony. Like, I mean, a little pony to start out because I thought I'll start small. And my pony was a thousand times more high-strung and more work than my first draft horse. And had mm-hmm. I known that going in, I would have gotten the bigger horse first. You know, cause that horse has that job. That's what he does. And he's Brit, you know, nobody's like, you know what? I want a horse that can pull a cart and a plow. And I want it to like jump around and kick the shit out of things. Right. That's <laughs> like, like those two don't go together. You know, you, you want right. a nice, calm, you know, horse that wants to work and, and, and is like, okay, I've done my thing. Now I'm going to go stand over here and eat clover while you ask, until you ask me to do something again. You, you don't want that high spirited animal pulling a cart or a plow or lifting some weight or, 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 or you know, moving a log, uh, skidding a log or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you asked about where would be a good place to get started if I don't have a, a club or a mentor next to me? And I would say um, the first thing you want to do is basically go to your local farmer's market because there's such a resurgence of animal power in small farms. It doesn't matter if it's a – somebody at your market will know someone who uses horses. 
so it, it's not so much the the riding centers and the and the riding barns that people take specialty lessons in that you want to go to. It's places like uh, markets or where else would be a good place? Let's see. Any kind of country living fairs or festival, you'll find people that do this in actuality. I imagine, you know, your listenership doesn't want to take dressage lessons. They want a horse that can, you know, ride into town or, or pull a cart. And I would start looking by asking around your local markets. Uh, I think the New York Times just did an article on the resurgence of animal power in small farms. And for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is they have that whole aspect of just being attractive. People like the idea of buying their vegetables from something as what they see as idealistic as a horse-powered farm. It kind of brings them back to an idealism of, or what they think is an ideal agrarian society. But also, it's just um, it's good business in the sense that if you can find a way to economically feed the animal, if you have land for pasture, if you can barter for hay like I do, you know, the animal are basically free energy in the sense that they provide the power without having to worry about stocking up on stabilized gas or hoping that, you know, this engine doesn't, the battery doesn't freeze, you know. So it's <laughs> a couple of uh, winters ago, we had a, a truck that stuck in a ditch and um, it was such a cold, miserable day that they called a local farmer's draft team out to pull the truck out because they knew that the, the tow truck couldn't get up the mountain. It was just too icy. So there's still a viable option, even if it's not as uh, public. People don't see draft horses as much as they used to, but around here, we're seeing them more and more. And if you want one, it's, it's as simple as asking around. And uh, some places do workshops. I mean, my farm does horse workshops for people who have never even touched a saddle before or maybe are even scared of horses to get them started, you know, finding local resources. So it might be that you have to find a workshop like that near you, but organizations like the Greenhorns, which is a young farmer's organization all throughout the United States, they do classes and workshops for things called field days and animal power days. So it's like anything else. If you're interested, you start searching online, you start talking to people, and before you know it, you have a halfling in your backyard. That's awesome. So, I mean, there's probably some people out there going right now, you know, single guys going, well, where do I meet a girl that does all this stuff and, like, has a falcon and a horse and a farm, <laughs> right? But, like, you, you know, you are you are single in, in the in the country. What What's it like, you know, I mean, is, is there, you know, meeting people and things like that? Is it, is it, do you feel isolated sometimes or? Yeah, it can be isolating. I mean, there certainly is a social life here and really good community of local farms and there's a whole bunch of uh, groups and organizations around here for that reason. Uh, up here we have something called weed dating. Have you ever heard of weed dating? No. It's when, I, uh, it's when an organic farm gets all the single people in the agricultural community together and they basically have them weed their fields for free and you get signed up with a member of the opposite sex to weed. So it's like speed dating, but you're reading the whole time, and then you get used to the plot. That's a real thing. Um, <laughs> it's true. I mean, they get, you know, they provide a potluck meal, and you get to meet, like, like 10 dudes while doing free labor for the farm. So, but besides weed dating, there's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really active in a lot of these 
Well, I guess the best way to say it is when I started farming, my parents and friends were convinced I was, like, destined to become a cat lady and live alone as a hermit on a hillside or be some kind of, like, proto-hobbit and, and never be a part of the real world again. And the truth is, since starting the blog and the website and the books, I've met seven times the amount of people than when I lived in the cities doing graphic design. And it's because people are drawn to your story or they're drawn to the lifestyle and we host workshops here and classes and I'm involved with clubs and archery lessons and the FCA and the horse club and the draft club and I, I know more people now living on a mountainside alone on six and a half acres than I knew in college when I was surrounded by thousands of people my age. So I, I guess if I was, I'm way too busy to be lonely and way too much is going on to feel isolated. I kind of wish I was a little more isolated at times because people just show up or they just stop by or they just, you know, I got a, a text today, folks are coming over for a game night. So I had no plans two hours ago and now I have, you know, four or five friends coming over uh, to, to play a board game and hang out and have some drinks and eat something. And so I definitely have that problem. Um, dating is super hard at least for me, because I find that around here, guys that are really interested in the country life or in the things I'm interested in, they're either already doing them and they're more interested in a, a sidekick than a partner, or uh, or they just think that maybe that's kind of intimidating to some folks. I don't know. Uh haven't been very lucky, though, when it comes in that department. So, I don't know. I feel like that time. I'm not really worried about <laughs> the guy situation. Eventually, there'll be a sucker. Who's like, this looks like fun. And then he can milk a goat while I go to a, a conference or something. Cool. So. I mean, that's, well, actually, it's usually when you meet the best person for a relationship is when you don't give a damn if you meet a person. <laughs> you get into the, uh, I don't need anybody mode, and then you find somebody you want to be with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah. So how did you transition from like an office job to being a homesteader? Did you do it one day or, you know, did you kind of phase it in or, or what have you? I wish that I could tell you that I did months and years of research and planned accordingly and had savings and was very diligent. But the truth is I just started doing it and that had its ups and downs. But I found once I realized people were living this way, like, in modern society, because back in 2006, 2007, when I was living in Idaho, I was working a, a corporate job in, in rural northern Idaho, and I found out a woman four cubicles down had 12 acres, raised um, cattle, and 200 laying chickens, and that was her side business, selling uh, beef and eggs. And I was like, but you're in a cubicle. You can't be a farmer and, and work here. Like, that's not how it works. And I found out that it absolutely is how it works and how most, I didn't know that most farmers had second jobs or another spouse worked off the farm. I just had no, I was totally ignorant to modern agriculture or modern alternative agriculture. And so I was like, well, she can have 200 laying hens. I can have three. And I, in Idaho, I took my kitchen window on the back deck and put a coop with a window to the back deck so that in the morning in my pajamas, I could open up the back window and get eggs in my kitchen. And once I started, like, raising gardens and raising rabbits and making fresh bread, there was just 
no going back. I now had that feeling of being less helpless, that, that sense I had when I lived in Tennessee of that homesteading community. I, I didn't have that fear anymore, and I realized it was just a matter of learning skills and doing what you are passionate about, and it was kind of a ruthless uh, hunt after that. And so I got a taste of it, and when I lost my job in Idaho, I ended up moving to Vermont, and I moved to Vermont. I could have moved anywhere from Idaho, but I wanted to be somewhere rural, and I wanted a place that I could have a job and have land, and so I got hired by Orbis, which is a fly fishing company in Vermont, and I worked there for four years before I quit to be a full-time farmer and author. So, you know, as you go along the way, you just, I added animals, I added skills, I got less and less scared, and you know, less than six years or seven years from when I first got those first Idaho chickens. I now am, you know, using a, a draft horse to pull logs out of the woods, trapping hawks, going fly fishing, and shooting bows and arrows um, on horseback, which to me would have been like out of a fantasy novel six years ago, and now it's <laughs> Tuesday. And that is like such a blessing, but it's only because of like what you call the duocracy, yeah. People who people who start doing shit make it happen. And you can't you can dream and read and plan and save and that's wonderful and everyone should be doing that. But at some point you just just say, I'm going to this horse workshop. Like I'm just gonna go. I am going to get this chicken and if the neighbors complain and the HOA tells me to get rid of it, fine. But I'm just gonna start doing it. And that could be as simple as getting some pea seeds and a pot and putting it in your kitchen window and growing something, but you got to do something every day, even if it's something small towards that goal. And, and before you know it, you're shearing sheep and, you know, plucking chickens and stalking rabbits and, you know, hopefully um, getting a deer in the next couple of weeks when deer season opens up here. Um, So you you just got to start doing it. And I think that can be really daunting to some people. Like, where do I start? How do I ever get there? And you start by going to a library, by listening to podcasts, and going online and meeting the people who do what you want to do. And you kind of hitch on to their wagons and shadow them and learn. And before you know it, that horse farm you've been visiting and helping them plow in the spring and ride in the fall and summer, before you know it, they're like, hey, you know, Stephen over in two towns over has a 15-year-old mayor he wants to get rid of. She doesn't do a lot of work, but she's good to learn on, and she's solid as a, you know, a Mack truck. So if you want to get her, they'll take her for five cords of firewood. And before you know it, there's a horse in your backyard. So, <laughs> man, it's a lot of it's a lot of just doing it. And, and don't be scared because, you know, none of this stuff, whether it's homesteading or archery or falconry, none of it is um, these high-consequence, terrible, terrifying things. Like, if you get a horse that doesn't work out, you sell it. You know, no one's going to send you to jail or ask you for $6,000 because you got a horse that weren't ready for it. I think it's more important to make mistakes and fail and, uh, you know, do all that in a passion of wanting something than it is to, to hope and plan and pray that you meet the perfect guy and he comes to the horse ranch and 600 cows or you meet the perfect girl and she already knows how to make bread and game stew. So you'll just hunt and she can cook. Like, if you're a guy, start cooking. And if you're a girl, you know, grab a saddle. Just start doing what it is 
or vice versa, depending on your level of interest or whatever. But the point is, do it. So how do you, like, let's say, pay the bills now? Do you have, are you, you know, into a situation where you're a part-time homesteader, part-time worker, or are you full-time homesteader? I know you've got your book, you've got your blog. Um, you know how because you, you can do a lot with your homestead, but generally in a modern world, there's still a need for some of those things we call Federal Reserve notes from time to time. So how do you manage that? Yeah, absolutely. I have about well, I went, I left a full time job and took on about thirty more part-time jobs. So I teach classes, I write books, I do freelance writing. I'm a, I'm trained professionally as a graphic designer. That's what I was before I left the corporate world. So I do freelance web and logo design. I do people's t-shirts. I do pet sitting. I do riding lessons. I raise pigs and people buy shares of pork. I have eggs for sale. I sell ads on my website. I... You know, I just recently opened up on my blog sales for um, wool cloaks, like the kind you throw over your shoulder to go feed the chickens in a windstorm. And I thought, who's going to want one of these? I made them out of the, I made these over-your-shoulder cloaks with hoods out of um, emergency blankets, like those wool blankets you see from military surplus stores for like 20 bucks. I made hooded cloaks with pockets and hoods out of those, and I sold six at $125 a piece. So that's snow tires right there. It, I, I found that my life now is constant resourcefulness, but it's never boring. And I never wake up, um, like I used to wake up, like just feeling hollow inside and feeling like I was living for somebody else. I mean, it's not as comfortable as it used to be, but every day I wake up like, okay, world, I have a mortgage payment to make. How are we going to make this happen? And and this this month it's wool cloaks and fiddle camp lessons and you know and so I'm never bored. <laughs> I don't really sleep well at night, but um, you know I'm planning. I have a whole plan set up for paying off debt, and I've been following kind of like the Ramsey method and saving and just kind of growing up financially. And between cutting my expenses, paying off debt, and just sticking my guns to making the bills i'm doing it so i wish i could awesome. say there was this easy way of doing it but it's pretty well, much just terrorized you know, I think a lot of people in your situation are realizing is that they're not just going kind of back in time so to speak in the way that they live their life on their homesteads but on the way that they earn their money i think we have this belief that people you know a hundred years ago on these smaller homesteads you know, they were farmers, they grew corn, they sold it to market, and back then, since there wasn't huge ag, you could do that and make a living. And you you mentioned Little House on the Prairie. Well, if you actually read those books or watch the old TV show, you know, you'll see that the men that have those those homesteads do produce a lot with their homestead, but they're usually doing jobs here, fixing wheels for a wagon or, you know, doing some work for another person and what have you, and, and basically farming out their skill set. And that is the way most Americans were, you know, 100, 100 plus years ago. They're, they didn't have a job. They were all entrepreneurs, but they had multidisciplinary entrepreneurship and they, a diverse array of skills that made them marketable. And that gave them, yeah, some tough times, but a lot of stability. Because I'm going to go out on a limb here, Jen, and say that you're never going to fire yourself. 
<laughs> True. You know, so like you will always be the person that you will hire to do the job that you find to be done if you can do it. Uh, so that creates some stability. And as you pay off debt and hopefully eventually, you know, your homestead, you end up with it, you know, owning it outright, then things get easier over time. Yeah, that's the plan at least. <laughs> I, you know, when I was working this job, most people, and I'm not picking on my last company or anything, but I worked in three different regions of the country for corporate uh, companies and most people were performing out of fear and obligation and they never felt safe because the way they, you know, any company gets performance out of someone is dangling that carrot of you're going to lose this paycheck if you don't do what I say. And there was no security in a quote unquote secure lifestyle. No. If you're not making someone money, you're, you're gone. It's not even been 30 years. And I, I saw it happen and like you said, I'm not going to fire myself. So I actually, you know, it might be a little dicey or a little um, scary at times making a living, but I never worry about getting fired anymore. That's for sure. Sure, absolutely. I mean, and and the, the, just I mean, from a employee employ employer standpoint, the balance that's done by companies is I want to to push you to work as hard as I can without making you quit and pay you just enough to stay, uh, and, 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 but as little as possible at the same time. That's the balance that especially a major employer is, is trying to, to do is to always balance that. How, how little can I pay you to get everything I need out of you and push you as hard as I can without making you leave? And, and that if I can find people that will do an adequate job under that condition, then I'll be successful as a business owner. And it's sad, but that is the that is the modern mindset of the employer. Not every employer. I I wasn't that way with people that worked for me, but I mean, yeah, you, you know, find finding an employer that's not that way is the exception rather than the rule today. It is, and I think the same goes for employees. They accept that mindset as normal. They just see that as how the world is, and you either take it or you don't have a job, and. That's why there's few, uh, I don't want to say few, but there's a lot more people scared to be entrepreneurs than there are entrepreneurs. And I think it takes a big paradigm shift to, a paradigm shift to decide, okay, I'm done with this game. I'm going to change what I'm doing. And, and you don't have to do that. I'm not saying that everyone that works for someone is in any way a, a worse spot or unhappier person, but... Some people just aren't cut out to be employees. <laughs> I certainly wasn't. So, I yeah. mean, I wasn't happy and I wasn't doing the job they wanted me to do. I, I was better off at home doing work for myself. Yeah, if you look at any position that I held for more than three years, it was because I was an owner. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I never worked out as an employee, and I, I, I still I don't think I could. And for people like that, there is only one thing you can do, and that's to make your own way. And it's it's cool to hear the way that you're doing it. How can people learn more about what you're doing, get your book, things like that, Jenna? Um, my blog is called Cold Antler Farm. That's the name of the farm. You can just search for Cold Antler Farm or go to barnheart.com. That's a barn like an animal barn and heart like a human heart. And uh, barnheart.com is my website. And my books are all over the place. So you can go to Barnes & Noble or you can go to Amazon or you can, uh, if you like, through my website, you can order through my local bookstore, and I will sign any book 
or personalize any book, and they'll mail it right to your house. So if you want something personalized, batandkillbooks.com will do that. But uh, hopefully you just come to the blog and say hi and watch me trap a hawk and kill some stuff with it. Let me uh, give you a little plug for your book here at the end. Uh, I'm sitting here looking at it, and I'm on the back looking at the uh, the blurbs that you have from different people like Ben Hewitt and Ashley English, and I just want to read the first blurb for people. Read this book to learn why farmsteads need to be loved. Jenna's one-woman farm is a jewel, small and lustrous, and it's from Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. So, folks, uh, that's a pretty big ringing endorsement. I'm not sure uh, how you got to Joel and got him to read your book to give you that, but uh, kudos on that, because I'm sure that's a blurb many aspiring authors would love to have, and uh, it says a lot about the work that you put into uh to your, your farmsteading and into your book. Uh, so hopefully you'll uh, pick up quite a bit of business after today's show. I will have links to Jenna's blog and uh, all her other stuff in the show notes today. Again, we are looking today, folks, episode 1,200 and let me see, to 38. I even lose track sometimes. So episode 1238, if you're listening in the future, uh, you can get... Uh, Jenna's book and uh, connect with her and Jenna thanks for being with us today it was my pleasure thanks for having me and folks with that this has been Jack Spirit today along with Jenna Rogan which helping you figure out how to live that better life times get tough or even if they don't seen our food these days you know it's on our TVs sometimes we forget we are what we There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution is you Yeah.